Well, let me start by saying that I think that the metaverse, as I see it, would not necessarily need crypto. It wouldn't even necessarily need blockchain. However, it would necessarily need a way of democratizing technology, specifically virtual worlds and environments. Good afternoon, good evening, good morning, wherever you are in the world. Welcome back to Social Convos. I'm your host, Diego, together with my co-host, Jean-Luc. Jean-Luc, we are back. And we are back from last week from the Social Media Ooh. Conference, Dirinamo. And where are we going today? We're going straight into the metaverse today. <laughs> Our guest for today is a very interesting story. Our guest for today is, is somebody who I recently just met. I didn't know him before. Uh, like two two months ago, I didn't even know him, and a, f- a f- mutual friend of ours, Sebastian, uh, who was planned to speak at our conference this year, at a certain point, was like, "Listen, I might not be able to make it this year, but the least I can do is come up with a speaker that is at least as good as I am, or even better." It was like, "I'm gonna get you somebody who is." in the metaverse space that knows about NFTs, that knows about blockchain. And then I got the name and the name, the name tag said, Mr. Metaverse. I was like, whoa, somebody actually claimed the name Mr. Metaverse for himself. So he has to know a lot. And then we met actually, he came to Suriname and it was the first time that I was speaking to somebody about the metaverse, that somebody came up with ideas that I was like, yes, these are actually things that can change the world. These are actually things that make sense. And the last thing I'll say about it is that when the internet came about, when social media came about, it was always like all the opportunities. And then it was us, the humans, kind of screwing those opportunities up. And I think one of the main goals for Aragorn is to make sure that we learn from our lessons in the past and this time around, when we have these new opportunities, that we make the most out of it. So without further uh, ado, Mr. Aragorn Rolodex, or as I should say, Mr. Metaverse. Welcome to Social Compost. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I, I actually think that's the f- best introduction I've ever had, at least from the you know from the point of view of you you really giving my ego a boost. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, also putting the well, bar right right up there, but I love it. Yeah. Well, that's good. But before we go to the alter ego, Mr. Metaverse, I want to go to Aragorn and I want to <laughs> know that. <laughs> I want to know the reference. Like, how much did your parents watch or read Lord of the Rings? Okay. So, actually, I have a great story around this. And I don't think I've ever actually shared it in public or on, on any stage. But here's the truth my mother wanted to call me Lancelot. And then my dad said, because these were different times, keep in mind, this was the early 80s. This is not 2022. So, you know, gender identity was in a very different place at the time. But my dad said, hell no. 
Because if we call him Lancelot, they'll call him Lottie in school, which is a girl's name, and that is Lottie. unacceptable. <laughs> so, so my mom was, okay, well, what are we going to call him then? And then my dad said, well, look, if we want to call him after some kind of night or something like that, well, it, it probably didn't go down like this, but they thought about it. And then he said, why don't we call him Aragorn? It's, it's from Lord of the Rings. They just read the book, and it's a name that starts with an A. He'll be first in the alphabet. And they just went with it. It's pretty crazy, really, because my older brother is called Hans Senior, <laughs> and my sister is called Melissa. <laughs> so, yeah. So they were just let's let's get creative with this one. Let's let's make the <laughs> yeah. They just I don't know. I I asked them whether they smoked weed back then, but they still they still <laughs> claim that they they didn't try anything. My parents grew up very safe, so I don't know. Maybe somebody put something in their drink. I'm not sure. <sighs> I think it was the, the main question everybody wanted to ask you last week, but everybody was like, he probably gets asked this all the time. <laughs> I do. So, I, I, I do get asked it all the time, but I, well, but as you probably know by now, I love telling stories, so I don't mind. So, but what was your real nickname back in high school? Oh, my real nickname was it was it wasn't Luddy, so... How, no, how well, you... look, all of yeah. this didn't really pan out, I think, as my dad might have hoped, because I, I think I don't... I had the clearest memories from primary school after I moved to a small village, because my, my, my grandfather died, and he left us a house, and that prompted us to move out of the city into a smaller village. And when I went to school there, I also was a city boy called Aragorn, and my mom was... Because my brother died when he was very young, before I actually got to know him, my mom was very protective of me because I was her second child and she wanted to give me everything that she, in her own eyes, thought that she might have not given my brother. So that meant that she tried to give me freedom to pursue all of my fantasies. She tried to play with me. She tried to encourage me to be a child. And so when I came I was seven, and when we I came to this primary, this new primary school, fourth grade. Well, not fourth grade. That doesn't actually translate that way. Vierde class, but anyway, it doesn't matter. Elf group vier. But when I got there, I was wearing a blue beret because we had these Dutch units called Dutch Bet, and they wore blue berets, and they defended. I mean, in my eyes, they were you know heroes defending people. I wore cowboy boots because I was in love with cowboys and all of that. I, you know, I didn't know the, 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 the connotations that I know now. I, I just thought of them as really cool. And I read books of Eagle Eye and, and White Feather. And I, I wore that stuff to school. So I came into this, this classroom full of kids that wore Nikes and Kappa training suits and stuff like that. I was wearing a blue beret and cowboy boots like it was perfectly normal. And I was called Aragorn. So it didn't, it didn't take very long before... I got bullied a lot. And then the teacher called a meeting in class and he said in front of the class, well, Aragorn is a little strange. And that really, when my mom, mom heard that, she really lost it completely. She lost it completely. She went to school and she said, how dare you call my kid strange in front of everybody else? That's just confirmation bias. And you know, all of that or confirming biases, sorry, confirmation bias is a cognitive bias. So yeah, and, and I got bullied a lot. But to answer your question, because I went completely off the rails, what was my first nickname? Well, they called me Popcorn because they couldn't come up with anything better that rhymed with Aragorn. Popcorn? 
<laughs> Aragorn popcorn. That was the only thing they could come up with. Popcorn. The levels of creativity in that classroom were really beyond me. <laughs> <laughs> so what's okay? But but this is an is an interesting because technically you it did do something which meant you were free. I, I mean, as a as a thinker at such a young age, you were free. You were free of those kind of societal constructs, and. You've also, like, we're around the same age. You've also experienced life pretty much before the internet was, was mainstream and life where we are kind of now trying to innovate further and further into the possibilities of the internet. So what was your first experience with, with the internet like? Do you remember, like, when you started, like, seeing the opportunities of, like, hey, this thing really, this thing is really interesting. Oh man, you're asking some interesting questions that really take me back. Well, first of all, let me lead into the answer to the question. So when you say, you know, I have a kind of a free mind, one of the things that I really loved, and I guess you could almost say, and I know this, you know, my mom had lost my brother and my parents both were in a lot of pain over that. But then they got me and later they got my sister as well. And they tried to give us everything that they couldn't give or hadn't given my brother. So in that sense, I'm very, very lucky because my parents paid a lot of a lot of attention to how they brought us up. So I grew up in a house full of African masks because my parents had lived in Africa. And my, and my dad's proudest possession was probably a Zulu shield made of cow's hide. And he, he he's even, I mean, yeah, he, he's very proud of that. He always was very proud of that. My parents were very proud to have lived there. And my father was very proud to have traveled because he went on the Dutch America cruise liners when he was only 16 years old. So this was in the, in the 60s. And he'd been to, actually, I think he's probably been to Suriname even. He definitely went to Panama. I know that much. So, and he went to the Suez Canal and to India, all of that before he was 18. So anyway, so my parents gave me really a lot to think about in terms of culture, languages, how to look at the world. And it was that that led to my first experience with the internet because my mom also wanted me to be well-prepared for the future. And so in 1987, she bought me a Commodore 64, which was my first computer, which was, it wasn't the newest computer at the time. And she bought it from my neighbor. My neighbor is actually still, the, the guy who was my neighbor was a boy my age. His name is Bim. And he's one of my very best friends until this very day. We basically grew up together. But basically they got a new computer and his dad bought a new computer. And then the old computer went to me. I got this Commodore 64. And that's how Bim and me became really good friends. And so my first, my first actual experience with the internet was because... Here's the funny thing. I moved away. I told you I moved away when I was seven. And Pim was my neighbor before that time. So I actually moved away from him. But because I had his old computer and because he had a new computer and we'd grown up playing computer games together, we stayed in touch. And then when the internet first came up in the 90s, he would still come over every half year to, for a sleepover party at my place and I would go back to him. So then when the first internet connections came up and he was, of course, doing stuff with that at home, that very quickly came over to me. And I, I went with him, I think it was with him, or at least I bought a new computer and we got a modem in it. And then I was able to play computer games over the modem with him. So that was my first experience. So as soon as the internet was there, I was into being online, being into online gaming, even though it was a dial-up connection from one computer to the other, and it wasn't the real internet yet. 
And uh, it's actually funny because one of the first things I thought of when you asked me this question is that somewhere in the end of the 90s, my mom actually cut the phone line with the scissors because I had racked up a telephone bill of 500 and uh, I was on the internet literally all the time doing, you know, all kinds of nonsense. And, and the funny thing is that I don't know if she knows this, uh, maybe if she watches this, she'll have a laugh or she'll have a heart attack. But I got up at three at night and I would go downstairs and I knew how to repair the cables and I, I just repaired the telephone cable, reconnected it so I could continue doing that. I'm sure she must have noticed. But yeah, it was real crazy. <laughs> the bills were still high. Yeah. Okay. Diego, what, 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 what was your first memory of, of the internet? I'd say I have experienced dial-up. So I, I still remember that era and was like, I think around you know, 13, yeah, when I was 12 or 13, even younger maybe. But yeah, dial up and it was, I think, to play this Digimon game. <laughs> so <laughs> it, it it's kind of connected. Like the, we're going into the metaverse talk and I, I think it's relevant to notice that if you look back, it's kind of this immersion in another world that kind of connected the people or gets the, them interested in the space. So like Digimon is like a popular cartoon, but it's also a card game. And it's, it was kind of the, 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 the rival of Pokemon, so to speak. So it's very pop culture and that's how kids connected. That's how I'd say boys more kind of got more into the, that kind of development, into storytelling, into animation. It's a whole different world. And bringing this back into what we're talking about now, like the metaphors, it's kind of being more intertwined. So I, I want to pass this back over to Aragorn. Like if you compare the introduction to the internet back in the nineties to the introduction of the concept now to metaphors, like how is that? How have you received that? If, if you put them side to side. He's laughing because he shared some videos last week. Yes. Exactly on this stuff. Yeah, exactly. So I was born in 1983. So I was 16 in 1999. So that means that for most of the 90s, as the internet was rising, you know, first real computers came into the homes of, of normal people. And the first 3D online gamers, you know, came into existence. I mean, I played Duke Nukem 3D and we played that on dial-up. I was there for that. And I wasn't a grown-up yet, so I had the perspective and perception of a child. But I do remember that I felt like it was this super exciting time, right? It was this, this time where it seemed like the science fiction movies that I'd been watching when I was really young in the 80s and the start of the 90s were actually going to be real, right? And this was the time, you know, and 1999 was when The Matrix came out. And I remember going to school and I had a best friend back then, Martin, and we were into a lot of this stuff together. So we had been absolutely massive fans of this this cult movie which nobody knows about anymore now but it's called brain scan 
And I don't know if you remember, but in Terminator 2, the the boy that plays or the, the actor that played John Connor as a boy, he plays in this movie as well. And it's about this video game on, on CD-ROMs, which is super, super high tech, of course, at the time. He put this in and then he'd play it. And then he'd go into this virtual reality world that seemed exactly real. And then, but he would commit murders. So this was kind of a horror game. But then, the, of course, the crazy thing this was, then it turned out then those murders had actually happened in the real world when he was in the game. And so that was, it was kind of horror sci-fi movie, but we were massive fans of this. And then, and then we came to our French class and there was my French teacher and she said, she was kind of young. She was 30 at the time, I think. She was like, oh, I saw these amazing movies in the cinemas this week. And you really got to see it. She told me and Marta, I think, or maybe the class. I don't really remember. But And we were like, what's it called? What's it called? And she was like, it's called The Matrix. And we had, I remember so vividly that I had no idea of what I was supposed to imagine with that, right? But then, of course, me and Martin went to see the movie and it completely blew our brains because even though it's, you know, dystopic and, and talks about humanity being enslaved by, by computers, it really, it really captured that feeling that back in the 90s, we thought, okay, this is really going to happen someday, but probably only when I'm like, you know, very old. But it still was exciting because this was a main movie that also had all these new CGI technologies. You know, technology was going really fast. So there was excitement about the internet, about the world, about digital worlds, about being connected. But a lot of people were skeptical, very skeptical. And now, when I look at the world today, I feel in some ways I'm having that deja vu from The Matrix, right? You know, when he sees the cat and he says, hey, I, ha I had a deja vu. And then... Trinity says, yeah, it's when they change something in the matrix and then you know, the fight starts. But I really feel sometimes like I have a deja vu. I might be an older person now, but the conversations I have and the experiences I see people have are the same. There's those people like me that once again are extremely excited about what, what is coming our way. And we can't wait to try things out. And then there's other people that, again, are like, you know, it's not going to work. It's not going to happen. It's, it's just a bunch of nonsense. It's marketing. It's, it's bad because, you know, we will all, it, it's dystopic. I literally have so many people saying like, oh, this, hor this, this future is horrible. We'll be even less human and it will be even more toxic. And the world is going to shit. Yeah, I, I don't feel that at all. Yeah, so. no, it's, it's interesting that you mention that, but also the... Like you mentioned also the technology, how fast it's gone. I'm, I'm quickly going to go through some comments because Dev mentions Finitry and Jonathan says, I was on Commander Keen. Commander Keen. Oh my God. I, one of my best friends is, we call him Keen. We've always called him Keen and he named himself after Commander Keen. Yeah. <laughs> and also ICQ, Netscape and Hotmail. I think ICQ was really big in Suriname. ICQ was 90, massive. In 97, even in Suriname. ICQ was insanely huge. I think the the, I, the language that we use on ICT was kind of the the predecessor to the SMS language that, that people use to the WhatsApp language that, that children use now. It has evolved because I really don't know all the all the abbreviations anymore. But that's kind of where it started. And and what I found interesting is that uh, while ICQ and other like text based internet apps were already there. In the 90s, it really took a long time for video calling to become mainstream. Interestingly, Japan actually had a mobile phone 
in the late 90s, early 2000s, where Japanese people would already be like FaceTiming each other way before we even knew what FaceTime was. But that also brings me to a technology that was way before we started becoming like mainstream video conversations. There was already Second Life. And like in, in some senses, there are some similarities to the metaphors with Second Life. On the other, it's just like it completely flunked. So I, I, what I've been waiting to ask you, what, what was different with Second Life that I think Second Life was at the time, 2005 even, it was a big thing. What happened there that was so not centered around real life that it kind of flung so badly? Well, let me first start by saying that you, you say it flunked, and I hear that a lot, right? And, but but I, I always ask, you know, what, what's the definition of flunking? I mean, you could also look at it from this perspective. Second Life was massively hyped, right? And when something is massively hyped, it almost always disappoints when it doesn't meet those expectations. But there are still 70 million Second Life accounts. I mean, I'm not saying that there's still 70 million players every day, but I mean, 70 million, there's 80 million people in Germany, right? There's 600,000 people in Suriname, as you taught me last week. So 70 million is, you know, is, is that a okay. failure? Is that a failure? Okay. Um, yeah, okay, I get you. But And Second Life exists still this very day. That's another thing that, that people seem to forget. There is people right now, this very day, that are making money, enough money even, to live off it in Second Life by selling virtual fashion. I think, I think the thing to realize is that street, Second Life, in many ways, was far ahead of its time. And I think that if we consider it a failure, then we can only consider it a failure in the sense that Second Life had the ambition to be an extension of our physical lives in, the same, in, in, in a very realistic way. And what I mean by that is that even today, if you meet people and you... You know, one of the, the the questions that for me always really divides humanity in two groups is what books do you read? And I, I don't I don't know, maybe it's because I'm called Aragorn, but people are there's two categories. There's people that that read fantasy and science fiction and they love that. And if they love that, then they hardly ever will read anything else. Right? And then there's people that don't like science fiction and fantasy. And they will never read science fiction and fantasy, and they will only read fiction. And the thing is that the people that read science fiction and fantasy are people that fantasize. They are looking for experiences that they feel that they can never have in real life, right? At least it's my interpretation. And then there's people that like to read fiction, and these are people that like things to be realistic. So the books they read, they want them to be something that they think they can experience in real life as well. And games at that time tailored specifically well to people that wanted to have a different experience. Because if you accept magic, if you accept technology that can do things that you cannot do in your physical life, then you're also more willing to accept that in a computer game, things are not exactly as in reality. 
But if you are looking for something that approximates reality and gives you a different experience within your own reality, in, in that reality, then if you go to a game like Second Life, you very quickly see all the things it lacks that you have in your real life or all the things that are not realistic. And I think that in that sense, Second Life was far ahead of its time, too far ahead of its time for people to be at least in a massive scale, be willing to lead their same, lead a a reasonably normal life in a virtual realm without there being any significant added benefit to that. That makes sense. So technically, they're under more and more successful than many metaverse projects. Hell, it's, 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 it's absolutely. I mean, if you look, I mean, I had some really complicated uh, conversations about this recently, but, you know, I posted, I was, I I still haven't released, but I made a video about why Decentraland and the Sandbox failed in my eyes. And I can say, honestly, they failed. I I actually really believe they failed. I'm not saying that they don't have any opportunity anymore to, to fix themselves or to maybe get back on track. But nine out of 10 times when it comes to these things, you know, you only have one shot at it. And and that shot has not been successful. I mean, there's one massive example in history. It's a game called, it's on the tip of my tongue. It's on the tip of my tongue. It's on the tip of my tongue. It's a space simulator. Oh man. It's on the Eve tip. Online? No, man, no man's, no man's sky. No man's, no man's sky. Like no yeah. man's sky. No man's sky. Is it no man's sky? No man's sky. No man's sky. No Man's Sky, yes. So No Man's Sky launched and it was a complete failure because it promised all these things that it didn't deliver on. But they managed to turn all of that around and they made it into a successful game. But it is literally, it's this is a it's a miraculous story. This never happens in the gaming world, in the virtual world. If a game fails on launch, it never gets over it, right? And so we have a look at the Central and Sandbox and we have to conclude that at their peak during the height of 2021 and 2022, they had, you know, thousands, even millions of people in in there and now i mean even the best estimate for decentraland is about you know 7000 a month and the sandbox sits around 50000 a month right that's absolutely nothing it's nothing it's it's just pe- people try to have a conversation around that and they argue over the numbers but it doesn't matter i mean if you go to any village with less than 50000 people but let's, you- let's put it in perspective because we a lot of numbers are hyped up or inflated numbers also i mean Social media is all about vanity stats. So basically they're like numbers on impressions and everything, but we don't really talk about the real engagement. And of course, with, with the gaming industry, it's kind of it's kind of similar. It's like, yeah, we have that many players, but yeah, how many daily active players are there? So in, in, in general, what, what would be a good estimate of percentage if you have like people that own an account to active users? Is is that a relevant? Is that relevant that you say, Jay, like, hey, there should be at least ten percent of the of the user base should be an active user? Well, I don't think it's that simple. So in that sense, you're right. I mean, many people argue that specifically Decentraland is an event based world, right? And I'm willing to accept that. But if I compare it to any other game out there right now, even to Pokemon Go, which you know was launched in 2016, I think. Six, six, year, no, six years old. I mean, a lot of these games these days are event-based. 
uh, right? Actually, I would argue that all new games that come out are event-based because if you look at Apex Legends, for example, or Fortnite, they are seasonal, right? They have once or twice a year, they have a big update. A new season is launched and that is an event. And then within those seasons, they have events and you you actually see the player base go up around events, right? Especially around the seasonal launch. But even in a low period, right, in a period where, you know, there's the least attention in the middle of summer when nobody wants to be inside behind the PC gaming, you know, there's still millions of players on these games, right? And even if you take less successful games that are not, you know, because for, that's not an honest comparison, let's be honest, Apex Legends, Fortnite are really at the top. But even if you take a game like uh, like World of Warcraft, which people claim that, you know, is dead, they claim it every year and it's been around for, for, for what, 18 years now, I think. Yeah, it's, it's closing in 20. Exactly. And, and there's still hundreds of thousands of players on there, even when nothing is going on, right? And this is an old game with outdated uh, graphics, with an engine that doesn't support mo- modern CPUs. I mean, the content at this point is is becoming almost laughable because you know they have tried everything, and it's just it's like what are they, what ridiculousness are they coming come up with next? So what what I take from that, and this is really the point that I'm getting to, is that it's not about what a game looks like; it's about the experience that people have, and if the experience is good. And people will flock to it and they will even be there when there's nothing to do. And what I find, at least, with Decentraland and Sandbox, and 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 let's say these are the examples because there's other projects out there, but with 99% of these projects right now, I find that they've been launched very hastily because people felt that there was a moment in the market where they could capitalize, where they could make money, where they could sell their tokens, where they could cash in. They they decided to release their projects based on you know the crypto bullish market, yeah, crypto hype cycle, and the crypto hype, and what and they didn't release their games because they had spent you know like I, Blizzard was Blizzard now is not in a good place, but Blizzard was famously known. Blizzard is a very big gaming studio. For those who don't know, it's now part of Activision. Blizzard was acquired for eighty billion in twenty twenty one by Microsoft. Blizzard was famously known and most beloved in the gaming industry because they said, we do not release a game until it is ready, right? They were famous for that. And I think it's that mentality that brought them massive, massive titles like Diablo, World of Warcraft, and even Overwatch. And when I look at the cryptos, the crypto, I said crypto, I didn't say metaverse. When I look at the crypto scene that is now pretending to be the metaverse scene, what I see is project after project that did not take that to heart. They didn't take any best practices about how do you keep people engaged? How you do you create a fulfilling experience? How do you create a game that supports a thriving community? What they did was they thought, okay, we got blockchain now. How do we make a game out of that as quickly as possible so we can make money? And I know that a lot of people working at these companies will feel that I am not doing them a service, that this is not true. But I mean, if I look at the end product and I'm a, I'm a 39-year-old gamer, I really can't say that there's anything in there that shows me anything different. I think that's a very fair assessment. And I have to agree with you. Like a lot of the metaverse games that are popping up are about hype cycles, getting things tokenized, getting sales in without having an actual product. And I still firmly believe it it should be gameplay first if you want to make a good game and to kind of emphasize on the point, like 
something like World of Warcraft and maybe even Second Life, it is still community driven. Yes, they they come in for the game first, the, the game play, story, the competitiveness, but to have longevity, it is community driven. Like I play Final Fantasy, for example, and that also has uh, seasonal events, patch cycles with updates. That's when you see the spike come in. But other than that, lots of content is driven by the community. There's like actual parties, DJ parties, streaming parties with players in game that it's pure entertainment. Yeah. So it, it's just a platform. Yeah. But you mentioned something very particular there, the, the difference between, you know, crypto versus metaverse. You segmented them. Could you elaborate on how you see what you see a metaverse actually being versus <laughs> if you had to eliminate or remove the crypto elements from it, what is a metaverse? Yeah. Well, let me start by saying that I think that the metaverse, as I see it, would not necessarily need crypto. It wouldn't even necessarily need blockchain. However, it would necessarily need a way of democratizing technology, specifically virtual worlds and environments. And I'm saying democracy for lack of a better word, because I'm not a big fan of democracy, but that's a whole other conversation. But what, what I mean by that is it needs a mechanic to allow communities to function in a way that is fair and manageable, okay? So I don't think that democracy generally is fair or manageable. You know, we'll have a different show for that sometime. It's the best we have right now. And we need technology to bring that to our virtual existence. Metaverse also needs the ability, just like in the real world, to actually own something. And I mean, having said that, I think that if you look historically at humankind, that a lot of of horrible things have been done because we invented the concept of ownership, right? Because it's a human construct. Let's, let me be very clear on this. Whatever you believe, ownership is a human construct, right? In nature, there is no ownership. This is something that we came up with. And I also believe that we need to get rid of it at some point, right? Just like in Star Trek. I'm not sure, however, that we can within my lifetime and I have also no idea how we would do it yet, but maybe I'll be surprised. So for now, we need to create the best that we can if we are going to expand our realities into the digital realm. There are many good reasons to do that. We can talk about that later, maybe. But if we're going to do that, we need to create an equal footing for everybody. And that means that everybody needs to be able to own digital assets just like they will can own physical assets right now. And it means that everybody needs to be able to have control over their data, their privacy, their identity, their location, and all of that, their votes in this digital world. So that's required. So that's, you know, so, so what does the metaverse then look like? Well, really, honestly, I believe exactly is what Matthew Ball believes in his book, The Metaverse and how it will revolutionize everything. I believe that it is inevitable and that it will happen or at least start to happen within the next decade 
maybe not to the full extent yet, but we will definitely make a significant move towards it, that our physical reality will be expanded and augmented with our digital experiences and our digital identities. And this, I mean, really, it's it's something that already started to happen with the advent of the internet. It's it's in in some ways it's going to be a revolution, and in other ways it's just a continuation of what is already going on. Because let's face it, even even in in Suriname, which is you know arguably not the most technologically advanced place in the world, it's not like maybe Dubai or Hong Kong, right? But even there, people do so much with their phones, right? It's way more than just calling people. I mean, you you might check your bank account data on there. You send apps. You hold pictures of your family, of yourself, of your children. You write stories. You check up on social media. You learn new lessons and new skills on, on YouTube or even, you know, I mean, there's so much that we do with these devices now. And so that means that to a very real, you know, extent, our lives are already digitized. And this is our access portal. And the thing is that this is just a very, very unpractical access portal. It works and we're doing it because the benefits of what we can do with it are so great that we are really, it's almost, you know, like we really, I mean, we, look at us when we're sitting with these things, man. It's so uncomfortable. I get a sore neck every day. It's really ridiculous. And there's no way we would be doing that if the benefits wouldn't be so great for us, or at least the, well, to some extent, well, also the reward. Yeah, it's, it, you can look at reward in different ways, but technically yeah. there's a big benefit or reward for doing so. Yeah, but, okay, so, now then. Yeah, so the metaverse, the, to, to just finish that one up, the metaverse is just going to be a continuation where we will move from having a very in, uncomfortable way of going into our digital lives and expanding our reality with them to a way more comfortable way of doing that, a more natural way. Actually, Mark Zuckerberg also said this. Okay, because now you mentioned something interesting. You already mentioned that one of the biggest gaming companies got bought up by Microsoft. I've been really interested in... in, in the concept of heterotopias in third space and finding spaces where everybody is like equal to one another. And basically we're kind of getting a new opportunity with that as well. On the same hand, you already said kind of ownership is kind of engraved in, in the way we are. Um, you can even go to the extent that we're in a society of a spectacle where it's like, it's, it's like, so at one, on the one end of the spectrum, we want to go towards like, understanding that ownership is a social construct and that we can all live free. And on the other hand, there's like this big commercial wave of like owning everything, owning the cool stuff and those kind of things, which kind of, it just doesn't match. It's like two different, like you mentioned the science fiction and fiction forge. You have like two streams, like one is like, we, we want to go to more equity. We want to create equity of at least of, 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 of input, you can say equity of output, you can say equity of input, but at the same time, there's this big move towards becoming rich, becoming wealthy, finding ways to, to maximize your personal gains. So what I'm really interested in is, is, is what's your view on how the metaphors can, maybe not reverse it, but balance it out. 
I love I love these questions. Are we talking a time? Do we have uh, do we have like a time constraint here? Do you, do you want an answer from me? How we see this in the next five or ten years, or just you know? Well, let's 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 do thirty. Let's let's just thirty. Okay, that's very yeah. extensive. Okay. Yeah. Well, okay. So here, so so let's go completely off the reservation. I believe, and that belief has grown stronger lately. And maybe one day people will watch this video and say, "Oh my God, he was a prophecy, a prophet." Or maybe they will watch this and they will say, "This guy was a complete retard, an idiot." A retard was not a nice word. Excuse me. He was lost, just like Professor Weizenbaum in 1983 when he said the internet would never work. But I believe that. What we're seeing today with the advent of Web3 and the first glimpses and realization of people of what the metaverse might be and will become. I think that this is the first move for humanity to actually move away from capitalism. And this is a very big thing to say. And a lot of people will listen to the show and say, this guy's nuts. I know it. But I really feel so because... Look, let's look at the world today. Let's look where we are. Let's take a moment to take it all in. We've had a massive economic meltdown about a decade and a half ago. Left the world in shambles. We bailed out the banks. All of us paid for that. Not the banks, all of us. And then we thought, okay, we're going to fix it now. At least that's what you know. your average Joe thought. And we believed that our governments would take care of that and our central banks. That's not the experience I have today. In fact, we're heading straight towards another cliff. I mean, listen to any economist, right? It doesn't even matter whether they work for banks anymore or not, right? Even the ones that are subsidized by the banks to tell great stories, they, they can't even, they can't deny it. They all know that we're heading for a massive disaster. We're, we're, we're heading straight for a massive clip, a, a, a massive meltdown. Everybody knows it. Everybody says we need to change something. You know, the only one that doesn't is, is, is President Biden because, well, he doesn't really know what's going on. Let's not make any nasty comments. But, but we know it. And at the same time that all of this is happening, at the same time that many people in the world are starting to panic about our economy, about our humanitarian crisis, about our climate change, we find ourselves in this unique moment in time where we have all of these technologies that are all reaching this level of adolescence where they have a potential impact to change each on their own, our lives completely. But they're not alone. They're all together. There's AR, VR, and, and XR, which is moving at a massively rapid pace towards maturation. There's blockchain and Web3, which is completely radically changing how you know, technological systems of, trans, of, of information transaction work or how transactions work, whether it be information or anything else. And there is artificial intelligence, which is come out of its most recent hibernation period and is moving very rapidly again. And I feel that all, I feel that all of this is bringing, at the one hand, is bringing us as, a, as a humanity, it's bringing us to that realization that how we have been doing things doesn't work. It's at the end of its life cycle, right? It has done us great in terms of, you know, perpetuating our progress, our growth, 
but we have now reached the limitations of this system and it's going to break down. And when that happens, it won't be pretty. We've seen that before in history, right? But we also have all of these technologies that give us a real chance to do things differently, to quickly adapt and to transform. And I mean, I spoke about Star Trek and in Star Trek, they believe that humanity really reached its enlightenment after the Third World War. And it's funny because in Star Trek history, that takes place around, you know, the next century. So I started starting to believe that the guy who wrote Star Trek is a travel from the future, man. <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, look at the world today. And I know that this sounds nuts. I know it sounds nuts, but... It was hard for people in the 90s to imagine what a mobile phone would turn into. And it was hard for people in the 80s to imagine what computers and the internet would do with the world. And it was hard for people at the start of the last century to imagine that by the end of the century, people would have landed on the moon, would be flying around in massive jet airplanes, and would be talking to each other across thousands of kilometers without you know, being able to hear each other. So who's the nutter? So, okay, so to to bring it back to a more... Yeah, you asked like, for 30 years. No, no, yeah, no, that's good. But for 30 years, but the same thing is like, if if you bring it back to like something that people can relate to, like yes. you just mentioned in 30 years span, like the way we can go and very far from also a very philosophical perspective. So, but if we, in, in Suriname, we would say Piki Money, like Team Money, which is like really... And small change. If we break it down, I'll, gi- I'll give an example. One of the favorite clips that I always show is a clip from the, I think, 60s or 70s, where somebody explains, like, listen, this gigantic computer that you see here will be a smaller version in your own home. And you'll be yep. able to book your tickets to a theater concerts and work away from home and, and, and actually be on vacation and still work. And give us a perspective in 30 years where we could be like with the metaphors, like a, okay. a practical everyday scenario where we're not taking off right now, but it can actually happen in 30 years. Okay. All right. So here's what's going to happen. Nigel Monas, who's living in, in Suriname, he's going he's gonna to use Web3. Right now, he doesn't know it yet, but tomorrow he will suddenly get the idea that he needs to learn Unreal Engine. So he's going to learn Unreal Engine. And then one year from now, he'll be so good in Unreal Engine because he watched a couple of YouTube videos and all of that because it's readily available. He'll be building virtual assets in Unreal Engine, replicating the Sudanese cultural heritage things, but blending those together with some kind of cyberpunkish thing for fashion. And it will really take off because it will go on social media during a social media conference 2024, organized by Jean-Luc. And the people will see that, they will take it to the States, it will take off, he will sell a shit ton of those. With that money, he will buy a Starlink connection, which he will install in a local shop in Paramaribo. And he will invite other Unreal Engine developers from all over the world to come there, stay in Suriname, experience the country, and, and you know work from there because it'll be possible to just work remote. So all of these Web3 people and all of these artists and creators that are living a life based on selling virtual assets, virtual fashion items that are being used increasingly in games around the world, like Fortnite and like Roblox and like Apex, they come to work from Suriname. 
And at the same time, all of this is happening. This market is growing exponentially from the 63 billion that it is today onwards in the next few years to you know almost 500 billion. And this will allow people from many other places in the world, like Suriname, that are currently left behind, to kind of get ahead of the Western world when it comes to the digital world and how it is populated and built. And the reason for that is that in the Western world, everybody's lazy. All of these, those white tatas like me, they're super lazy. Can I say that on the show? <laughs> they're super lazy. Yeah, most, because... most people would understand what it is. So <laughs> because I think you're cool. <laughs> because they have, they have fast internet and they have expensive computers and they have everything they want and they have easy access to payment rails through their banks. So they don't give a shit, right? But it's these, these people, you know, like the people watching the show maybe now, right now, in Paramaribo or anywhere else in the world. They, they see the advantages and they, you know, they want to take those advantages. They're eager to, to take that and they start doing that. And then in this massive new virtual economy that's growing, they start to take a really big piece of the pie, which is going to shift the financial streams in the world to, to, to them and to their wherever they are, which will then allow them to leap ahead because they will already have the experience, they will have the understanding, and then suddenly they will also start to get the money, at least for as long as we have capitalism. And I, I think that that will continue to happen. In the same time, China is, is rising to power. So what you'll see is that China will build its own metaverse, which it will try to cut completely off from the rest of the world. And what you'll see is that Western countries like the United States and Europe will possibly I hope not, but I think that they're going to really struggle because they are so bureaucratic, right? They are so, you know, stuck in their old ways and their old rules and their old systems that they that they're just bogged down. And that's going to shift how the world looks. But that won't stop technology because if you read Jeff Booth's book, The Price of Tomorrow, you know that technology is such, it's a force of nature, right? In a, in a, in a real sense. It's deflationary power is massive. So as all of the devices that are being used to enter these virtual worlds that are really being developed by people that might not even have true access to them, but that are capable of developing assets for it, as these technologies become ever increasingly more accessible and cheaper, the people in the rest of the world will start to use them too. And that's when the real wave will hit. Because then suddenly, you know, there will be like a, a second Alembo, right? Alembo is a company that is in, in Paramaribo. And what they really do is they outsource Web2 kind of activities or done for Web2 to Suriname in Alembo. But they work for, you know, a lot of companies in Europe and, 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 the, and the Netherlands. And so all of that can happen again, but this time for Web3. And I, th I think that can really shift the balance in the world. Because what you'll see is the same thing that we saw after the Second World War. After the Second World War, the UK got left behind and Germany leapfrogged ahead because in Germany they had nothing. So they had to, they, they started with the newest new technology. And in that way, I really hope that the people that have nothing right now in the world because they were left behind will have an opportunity through Rep3 in the metaverse to leap ahead again and get in front of the rest. Is that a, is that a good answer? <laughs> is that, does that answer the question you Very, hope? very impressive answer. And I can, yeah, go ahead, Diego. No, I, I, I just want to say those, those fantasy story, like upbringing and the, that storytelling element, I can really see it come true in the way you told that, painted that picture for us and the people listening. 
because I could live. When Miguel as well, I think he would actually be someone who could pull that off. Yeah, he's probably already doing that, uh, doing it personally. But yeah, and I think you hit some important notes for people to think about on how capitalism works, on the broader society works. And uh, there's a saying like history doesn't repeat, but it, often, but it often rhymes. So we can learn a lot from, you know, what happened in the, the past and how power shifts have happened, especially if you look at how post-World War II, the, the power has concentrated uh, from Europe to the, the North America, basically. And what's happening in China are all important elements to that. But then I, I want to go even further or more far-fetched, like you just painted a picture to the next 30 years, something tangible, something practical, something that Miguel can do, for example. But on the other end of the spectrum, are you familiar with Sword Art Online? Sword Art Online? Yeah. I've heard of it, but you'll have to refresh my memory. It's basically a virtual world and it's even more than just what we have now. And what the premise is that you deep dive into a headset and basically transfer your consciousness into that virtual world where you also can experience like feeling touch. So this brings me to the idea of, you know, Elon's chip integration yes. in, 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 <laughs> in people. Like, as you said, fiction, fantasy fiction, science fiction, has been describing for years now what we're experiencing now. Yep. So how dystopian or utopian is that for you? For me, I, dystopian or utopian is really, it's a product. It's a product, right, of, of an equation that involves humanity and how we act, right? So there's technology and then there's humanity and then equals utopian or dystopian. And what that really means is that the future as it comes true, that really all depends on us the choices that we make as a collective, as a society, what we allow to happen. I watched a documentary yesterday, yesterday called A Trip to Infinity. It's on Netflix now. I highly recommend it. It's very interesting. And in it, they pose the theory that anything that can happen will at some point happen. So, But they also have this theory that the universe is infinite and therefore there is replications of all patterns within it because it's, you know, they have to be there, but they will be there with slightly different changes. So there might be universe in which we live maybe where all of this turns to this very dystopic shit world like in Blade Runner and the world is ruled by Vade Industries and... You know, we create cyborg androids that are basically slaves and then they kill us all. This is possible. I believe that it is possible. It probably does exist already somewhere. But in this very same universe, it's also possible for all of that not to come to pass and for us to go into this future and use technology for good. This could be a future in which children living in Rio de Janeiro in the center of a mega city that 
would have to travel six hours to get out of the city and even see, you know, a tree, will have the possibility to strap on a headset and truly experience the peace and blissfulness of the rainforest and the wonderful birds and animals that belong there. Some people might call that dystopic, but I honestly think that, you know, what is reality? Reality is just electrical impulses interpreted by the brain, just like Morpheus said. And our brain is already a filter because to a fly, a heap of shit is the most amazing thing in the world because that's how it filters reality, right? To us, that same heap of shit is, you know, not so much. So our brains filter it differently. I think that reality and how we experience is what it is. I think what really matters is how do we feel about it? And I believe that the technology has every potential to make us feel great about it, make us feel great together, give us the opportunity to have collective dreams, to increase our empathy, to bring us closer together, to make us realize that we are all together part of this divine, infinite world in which we are equally ocean specks in an ocean of endlessness, as well as divine pieces of of a God. And, you know, all of that sounds, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the kind of person I am. But what future we will live in, that's something that we have to decide together. And Luckily, I think that even though there are some significant things going on right now in the world, like, for example, the way Apple is manipulating the market and how they're building their, their empire, you know, stuff like that, it, 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 it might turn out dystopic. But we also see that it seems that a lot of us have seen what has happened over the last two decades with the Internet, and they're saying, no, not again. We are not again going to have our privacy taken from us, our data used against us. There's people that look back at the previous century and the world wars at, you know, how wealth has been completely distributed the wrong way that are standing up now and saying, no, we're not going to have this again. We now have technologies to, to even the scales, to balance things out, to bank the bankless. So we have a lot of potential and opportunity to do things differently. We've never lived. That's one thing for sure. The, us, you... Diego, Jean-Luc, me, the people listening to the show. Humanity, as we know it, has never had this opportunity before because this is the first time in human history that we are this hyper-connected, that we can communicate around the world, but also that we have such easy insight into our own history where we can go on YouTube and we can just start a video and we can see all the things that we did wrong 100 years ago. They didn't have that 100 years ago when the first world war broke out. They didn't they couldn't go back and see, you know, what the 100 year war was like in the Netherlands. Most of the people didn't even know about it. When the second world war broke out, you know, the only thing that they knew about the first world war was that young guys thought that they missed an opportunity for grandeur, for for, for glory. Now, if you ask me about the first world war, I go online and I watch everything quite on the and the western front on Netflix and I see people dying in the most gruesome manner and I'm like, oh, Please let this not happen again. Let us do everything to avoid this. So I want to quickly tap into that because the, the interesting thing here is like, and it's the same with social media, it's the same with the internet. We as humans decide how we use it. Like, do we use it for good? Do we use it for something bad? And I usually don't do this, but I think I sent it to one of you already today. It's it's this NASCAR racer, Rush Chase. Yeah, oh, I, I thought that was amazing. He he did something which is really amazing. So I'm gonna pop it into the to the screen. So what he did is he was playing video games like 15 years ago, and then there was like a video game move 
And he was like, hey, I felt like Toulouse. Let, let me try this out in real life. And it, it actually worked. It's just pump on the gas, go to the wall, and let just the wall slide you past everyone. And like, these are examples of, of, of things that actually happen like in games, in, 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 in virtual reality, that you're like, hey, we haven't really, like you mentioned, we haven't really lived that as well. It's like, hey, this, this is something we can try. So for me, that's really something positive that I'm saying like, hey, the, the problem in a real life, experimenting in real life has real life consequences. Yes. Like, like if, if you're like, I've never done this before, but I want to try it, it can definitely go wrong and it has real life implications. So if we get to experiment and innovate in a, in a virtual space where when it goes wrong, the 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 flat the, the it's confined within the yeah, virtual confined if it goes wrong it goes wrong within a confined space that allows us to practice something and then figure out like hey is this possible in real life so for instance i've been in gymnastics for six years when i was a teenager and i could do a front flip but i never even tried a backflip i was too scared i was like this is not something for me and now there's like, my children are watching like six, seven-year-olds who just, they just stand and they do a backflip. And kind of that generation is going to grow up with like 50% of, of people being able to do a backflip when they're 20 years old. And these are just things that like Aragon mentioned, it's like, we don't know it's humanly possible until we see it and then realize like, hey, this is possible. And with the metaverse, you get to like taste and experiment and in a confined space. And if it works, you can actually bring it to real life. So I think that's one of the positives. And then another thing you mentioned, Aragon, is that how is the how are the Europeans and the US going to play along in this game? And I think the story broke that the UK Prime Minister is actually pro-crypto. So I do feel like it's it's also about what the decision makers. How do the decision makers decide to understand that it's, first of all, a decision should be made by the majority and with the majority, the majority of the people and how much are we're going to understand because that's also the problem. And this is something Aragon and I discussed a lot as well. It's like, and we discussed it, Diego, on the show, like what are the biggest crypto projects in Suriname that got the most exposure? And, yeah. and. And as soon as it becomes a centralized kind of blockchain, you're, you're very much, um, the, the chances of a rock pool are high. There's just so many things that can go wrong and happen. Whereas with a decentralized space, you get, you get to at least experience more like what could go wrong and you have a little bit more governance. So the last question I want to ask Argon is because we technically you could do it without crypto, but then using crypto as a governance token. Mm. So if, if you look at, yeah, how, how can we use it as a governance token? Because just my final thought on this, the problem with currencies now is basically the currency is defined top down. Basically the currency is like, hey, the government is, when it's inflation, the government in the end is responsible for it. Whereas the world we're moving towards is like, the governance is owned, the token is owned by the people and they, uh, their greed will make it go in, uh, inflate or if they're very well aware of what it's worth, it's actually more stable. Yeah. Okay. So 
if I listen to you correctly, I, I kind of feel like there's there's two aspects to this because of course, you know, there's crypto. And and when I say when you say crypto, most people think of digital tokens that represent a digital currency. And that's really just one way of using crypto, right? It's a side effect of having blockchain technology. And it's a it's a mechanic that ensures that the system is reliable and perpetuates decentralization because contrary to popular belief, not every crypto is is decentralized. Decentralization only happens over time as more nodes are created and nodes are basically people having a small computer at home where the data of the blockchain is saved and then it is compared to data of other people's nodes to verify what, you know, if the majority has the same data and then when new data is uploaded, all of the nodes have to agree basically first and validate. And for that validation process, which takes energy and that's what the nodes are needed for, they get rewarded and that reward is what actually turns into a crypto at the end of the day. But there's many many other genius ways that people have come up with of expressing this reward. And one of the things that you can also do with, with these blockchain technologies is that you can create tokens that are then used to vote. And initially this was created for governance tokens and it was created to vote over the system itself. So basically a democratized way of controlling the crypto network so that not random changes can just be implemented that would, you know, shift the balance of the, or the control of the system, but that all of the nodes have to come to a certain agreement or at least a percentage of them, a majority percentage before a certain a change to the blockchain software can be made. So this is all security. Now then they came, they thought, well, but we can use this for different things too. And this is the beauty of blockchain technology. You can also use it as a voting mechanic for other things. So for example, I don't know if you've seen the, the elections in the United States in 2020 for Biden, but I saw video recordings of people in the United States outside of voting boxes and or ballot boxes, what are they called? And these lines were miles long. People that were actually too old to even stand had to stand in line for hours to be able to vote. I don't think they're going to do it for the next election in the United States because that would be crazy. It's crazy talk, but but they won't be doing it because it's not possible. They could actually replace that whole system with blockchain. And they could have every single American vote with an app and they would be 100% assured of an honest system that cannot be tampered with. At least not on the technological side. Let me okay, okay. let me make that clear distinction. Okay, but here, here's the the catch though. As a citizen, would you do it digitally, knowing that there could be a possibility? And this is where, again, we have to restore faith in humanity. Because one of the things that would happen is there would be a conspiracy theory of somebody knowing or a company being able to see who voted for who which is the main reason why people would rather go on a pen and paper and yeah, do a yeah, phone that's anonymous. Yeah, but yes, and this is why, this is of course why I said that it's not gonna happen because it's crazy talk because the current population of America would never trust it. I mean, there's, 
Maybe, maybe, maybe the American population. Maybe no, the, I wouldn't even say only the U.S. I think, I think the, nowhere like, in the world. Paranoid, right? no, no, no. Yeah. You're right. You're right. But that will change with Gen Z, right? As soon as all of these people are old, which of course will, you know, will be another 30, 40 years before they're gone. But let, let me say it differently. With every year that goes by, the percent, percentage of the population that is a digital native, right? And even many millennials like you and me already will become a bigger percentage of the people that actually have to use this stuff. And with that generation comes a bigger understanding of the fact that the technology can be trusted. It's the people that cannot be trusted. So as long as you 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 set it up correctly with this new technology, you can already at least ensure that with that they cannot they cannot tamper. Shamil said something. Shamil, I hope yeah, that the reverse immersion yeah, I, I think that's a really interesting question. Yeah, yeah. So last, this will be the last question because we have to close off. But I mm. hope the America first immersion will not make us lethargic like people worried about while on the on action ship. This is and this is one of the things like to take it into a little broader perspective. I think this is like this has been said with the internet with social media before. Like we're going down the rabbit hole here before social media with the internet before internet with television. Before television with radio, it's kind of like this real falling narrative. But what? How do you feel about that? About that being a different. Well, look. <laughs> well, I think the first, most important thing here I would like to say is that even if I would say now that the metaverse will make us horrible human beings, that the world's going to go to shit, then they won't change anything. It's still going to happen, right? This is something people need to realize. There's no way of stopping this. Resistance is futile. You will be assimilated. So then if you just accept that reality, and if you're going to be a real stoic about it, which is interesting because stoicism is a 2,000-year-old philosophy. If you're going to be a stoic about it and you say, okay, the obstacle is the way. It is going to happen. There's nothing I can do about it. So what can I do? What do I have control over? then you know that you have control over how well you educate yourself, how well you are prepared and how you're going to go into this world. And if you then combine that with the knowledge that on the first rise of the internet and social media, we were actually stripped of, let me make a quick calculation in my head, 55 plus 37, is that correct? 36, 38? 35, 80, it's 85. I'm so bad at math. Uh, anyway, over 80% of our human ability to communicate, which is voice modulation and nonverbal communication, according to what's this professor's name? Merabian, Professor Merabian. That was left out when we went onto social media because on social media, all you have is text, which is why there's a whole generation now using emotes and all these abbreviations because it's a whole generation of people that realized that they were missing most of their communication. They could not express their emotions. They could not express nuance. And so they've been reaching out and trying different things. And older generations say, oh, it's childish to use emotes. No, it's actually more mature because it shows the understanding of the person communicating that there is much more to communication than just words. But that has made us toxic. Because we, no matter how hard these younger generations try to bring all this humanity back into in a communication, we have six million years of evolution that use voice, vo voice modulation and, and physical, you know, nonverbal communication. 
And so we need that. And this is why our move to the metaverse is actually, I think, going to make us, going to bring us back to who we really are. It's going to reintegrate our humanity into our virtual existence. Because if we have a virtual avatar with a real facial expressions where we can hear each other's voice through high level audio quality and it is real time, then we can finally, after half a century of increasingly deteriorating communications, deteriorating empathy. We can finally move again into an age where we can really experience each other. And it will be a a wondrous age because for the first time, a child from Suriname can have a real-life interaction with a child from Russia in school where they have a lesson in class together. They can even talk to each other in different languages and they can still get an understanding for the other's feelings and wonder at what the the physics teacher is teaching at this moment. And that is something that has never been possible in history. It can truly bring us together as, a, as humanity. I think that is a very beautiful note of ending it. And I think you've framed it very succinctly as basically bringing the humanity back into the virtual communication that has been lost over the past two decades. Well, I, I'm I'm lost for words. I, I think that was that was a perfect explanation of, of where we wanted to go. Argon, we want to thank you so much, <laughs> also for the extra fifteen minutes that you gave us for the show. You wanna thank you so much. Before we close up, we do wanna ask you if people wanna connect, if people wanna reach out to you, where can they best reach out? Well, first of all, guys, thank you for having me. I really, really enjoyed this conversation. So thank you for that. It's a great honor and a privilege. If people want to reach out to me, you can reach out to me on LinkedIn. This is the best place to reach me. You can read everything you need to read about me on my LinkedIn profile. My phone number and everything else is also on there. Please do not dox me or send me a thousand pizzas. And if you want to know more about what I'm doing, then please go to www.itsmrmetaverse.com uh, www. or follow me on any social media at, at It's Mr. Metaverse. Got it. And with that being said, again, from my end, Aragon, appreciate it. Hope you had a pleasant stay here. And we hope to bring Suriname to the Metaverse ASAP. Awesome. Thank you all for watching. This was Social Confo. See you back next week for a brand new episode. Bye-bye. Swai, swai.